Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale. And before we introduce today's guest, have you ever walked into a location and went a pastry shop, bookstore, maybe a coffee shop and went, if I could just take that scent home with me, I would love to have that. Well, now you can. Aroma Retail sent to your space has over 80 fragrances from resorts across the country, places, a mood collection, and seasonal scents. Here in Las Vegas, where I'm at, they have all the major casinos that have the different scents that you might want. Aria, Bellagio, Caesars Palace, Mandalay Bay, you name it. Low cost, simple, and easy to set up and use. Scent your space the same day you get your product. I'm going to tell you how to get this. Go to beforethelightspod.com and go to the sponsor page and click on the Aroma Retail logo. Use the code LIGHTS10, that's LIGHTS10, to get 10% off your offer. And please use the link. It lets them know that I sent you. I'm telling you, I love mine. I come in the door and I get hit by Mandalay Bay every time I walk into my house. So I am more than happy with Aroma Retail. You're going to love it just as well. And welcome to Before the Lights podcast, the show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. Joining us today is a man of high integrity, a successful entrepreneur, a concert producer, manager, promoter. He's represented Dino, Jars of Clay, and discovered Grammy winner, Little Big Town. He has molded the careers of artists in every music genre, and at one time, he worked with Van Halen, Bon Jovi, Michael Sweet, and others. He has produced Tennessee River Run and formed mega music festivals such as Bama Jam, Pepsi Gulf Coast Jam, in which he is the executive producer, Sand Jam, and Spring Jam. He has been in the music business for 35 years. I'm going to call him the Jam Man. Please welcome to the show, Randy Lovelady. Randy, how are you? I'm good, man. I'll send you a tip in the mail. That was pretty dang good. I'm impressed with myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Where where does the name Randy come from? It's actually Joe Render Lovelady Jr., so my parents, instead of calling me Little Joe, because my dad was six six, and my mom was six foot, they decided to call me Rendy, coming from Render. Gotcha. So it was a, a family name. It's real. Same thing with Love Lady. It's family name. <laughs> <laughs> Who was Rendy Love Lady as a child, being that you were born and raised in New Orleans? I was a preacher's kid. My okay. father was a Baptist minister in a church in New Orleans that had about two hundred members. And, and New Orleans being a predominantly Catholic town, it was very uh, different for me. My childhood, it had a great childhood, but I definitely had that uh, Baptist side brought up around me. So it was, uh, it was unique. It was unique. He loved music. Um, he uh, started sweeping the floors of the Sanger Theater when I was 13 in New Orleans. Uh, the Messina Brothers gave me a, a start there. And I, so it just... It's kind of stuck. It was a a good childhood, but it definitely was a Southern Baptist childhood. So that that ought to say all I need to say right there. Agree. You also played a little bit of football. How old were you when you started playing football? As a youngster and then all the way through college? I did. I played at 12 years old and went all the way through college. Took my licks and and even even tried, made a run at the professional league and then decided to go beat tour manager for Van Halen. So it just kind of fit more of my personality. <laughs> Understand that you, you mentioned that you started sweeping floors for the Messina brothers at 13 years old, but then you, later you were their national director of concerts. 
How did that yeah. happen? And what age were you when you started that job? I, I graduated from college and uh, Louis Messina and Charlie Messina, which Louis actually is a leader of AEG concerts now. But uh, Charlie, I mean, he had, you know, there's those people in your life that play that uh, influencer. Mm -hmm. And he was he was kind of the one that put me under his arm. And uh, it started out as a job with Messina Presents, and then it turned into Pace Concerts, and then it turned into obviously what it is now, Live Nation. So it, it just it just grew in its own right. I was at the right time at the right place, and I was uh, traveling with the band representing um, the, the promoter side. They called it a promoter's rep. And um, when that whole split up with uh, Mr. Roth happened, I happened to be at the right place at the right time and got asked to come in and finish out that tour. And next thing I know, a couple of years later, they're knocking on my door again. And it was pretty awesome, man. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was a run for a long time. And when you're in the midst of the hair bands, everybody else wants you to play with them. So I, I, I did a run with Jovi and then did a run with Motley Crue and, and then, uh, and then uh, started my own thing, managing while I was tour managing, trying to create it with uh, Michael Sweet and Striper and, and Discovering Jars, just like you just said. So it was, I kind of had a double dip for a while to pay my bills and build my career. But then a uh, long time later, I'm just I'm still kind of doing my own thing, staying in the music business. Some people think I'm crazy, but this is all I know. I, I understand. You received your master's degree in religious education at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. Was that the first original career path in, and then the music industry just kind of fell in your lap, so to speak? No, not really. I am honestly, I was raised. I'm a man of faith. I, I, I am a, I, I'm a believer, and I, I, I thought that for a season, and I worked with my dad at his church, uh, but I thought real fast that was not my path. But I still had an intellectual desire to study and to learn about God and learn about Christ and. So I kind of did that at the same time, even while I was a tour manager. Some people would have said that was a conflict, but for me it wasn't. I mean, I was I was doing my job, but then I was growing my faith. So it it just it it kind of came at the same time, doing the same thing. And but it uh, it was definitely. It, I mean, I wouldn't. I'd be telling you a fib if I didn't think about it for a second. But it just wasn't my path. So I felt a con. Honestly, I feel like I've done more good in the kingdom's business doing what I do now than I ever would have done as a, as a preacher or a teacher or something like that. When you talked about and mentioned that, you know, you were with Van Halen crew, Motley or Bon Jovi. What can you tell my listeners like the day-to-day -day grind of being on the road all the time? I mean, honestly, the, the biggest thing that was the, the hard part was you, you wake up, it's you're, you're loading in at 7 a.m., 8 a.m. You have, you know, 15 semi trucks back then, they didn't have all the special lighting. It was all bulk trucks. And then uh, you, you loaded in, you're ready for sound check about two o'clock. You did sound check at two. You, you fed your crew. You got everything settled in. You opened the doors at six. You did your show about seven 30. You got your opening acts on, you got your next act on, then you brought your headliner on Then you got them taken off the show, coming off the stage. Then you, put them back on the bus or the plane, whichever one they were going on. And you had to take it all down. You got in your bunk about one o'clock in the morning and you tried to get some sleep on a bumpy bus between one city to the next. And you did it all over again. It's not a sexy life. You know, no. they, they think, wow, you are a tour manager. You know what, man, I'd, I'd rather, much rather been an accountant some nights, but it just, the reality is it was my path. And 
I mean, I was good at it. I was young and I, I actually uh, did well early in my years. And then it kind of followed me through. I mean, you can look at my background. I have a lot of platinums, I have yep. Grammys, I have all the bells and whistles. But the reality is, I mean, I honestly learned a lot in life and got some lifetime friends that will be with me forever. How did you discover Little Big Town and then become their manager? Well, the truth is, <laughs> I lived in Nashville. I was the rock guy that did the rock stuff and the Christian stuff in Nashville because I also managed a big guy by the name of Carmen mm. and, uh, you know, Jars of Clay. And there's several other Christian acts in the area that I've managed at the same time. And one of the, the young, the, the dark headed girl and the blonde in the band Little Big Town were both really uh, close to me because of the Christian world that we were in. And um, Karen and Kimberly came in my office one day and sat down and said, we really want to try working in the country music business. So we started talking about a trio and we started developing that idea and started listening to guys to, to bring in. We knew it needed to be a guy. And we started singing for people and started getting around town. And the next thing you know, we said, you know what? This is not unique. You had Lady Annabellum and you had several other trios in the country industry. So we said, let's, let's try to do the quartet thing. So we uh, started Little Big Town as a quartet, two guys, two girls, and little trivia on the side. The first two guys in Little Big Town were Gary LaVox and Jodon from Rascal Flats. But uh, they, they had a, a cousin come in by, involved, and Jay called up Gary and said, hey, I've got this thing. And I went, well, you know what? You can't argue with that. So he went and they went and started Rascal Flats, and then we found Jimmy and Philip and uh, – and then the rest is history. They, they've been together now going on 20 years. It's, it's been a great path. Absolutely, it has. Did you really sign jars of clay on a napkin? I did. You did? Wow, you have done your research. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I did. We, I was actually on the road with Striper, and, which was another Christian band. And we were in uh, a little town in Greenville. Illinois, we're at Greenville College. Yeah. And the guys were playing at a coffee shop. And uh, I literally went to see him play and I was blown away. It's this new sound, this acoustic rock sound that had never come out. I didn't know they were a Christian band when I first saw them and didn't really think of them as Christian band. They're all young. The youngest guy in a band was 17, which that was a new experience for me. But they actually did a school project. I saw them that night. Let me finish that story. So I saw them that night playing and I sat down and met with them and I said, here's the deal. I want to sign a six month deal with you. I want to talk about what we possibly can do. And if something doesn't happen in the next six months, you, you owe me nothing. And then yet, if I pull something together, you're going to, you're going to, you know, we're going to start working together and do a deal together. They had done a class project. You're going to love this. They did a class project for Greenville college. They, they made a D on the project and that same project sold 6 million records later. <laughs> that teacher will never live it down. But uh, yeah, I did. We actually did a little promissory letter on a napkin and we started from there. The rest is history. You know, Randy, I'm not so sure the mainstream public knew Jars of Clay was a Christian band. They didn't. How do you know? The first single is a breakthrough single. It's top five in eight formats. And it's a song about Noah Ark. So how do you figure that? But they didn't. All of a sudden, the second record came out and somebody went, hey, I think these guys are Christian <laughs> and I was kind of like, yeah, you think, but the truth of the matter is they walked their path and they, 
they kind of played to both marketplaces. They played to the Christian marketplace and the, and the rock marketplace. And they would play in twice the number as a, at a neutral arena. And it really worked for their career. It was, it was a good thing for them. Who was the first group or artist that you managed then? I, my, the first one, honestly, was Dino. Was he Dino. Was, Dino, the Christian concert pianist. He was my first signed artist. And uh, I took him to Branson, Missouri. So, and then at, in the midst of that, that's when I started working with Striper and then Charles of Clay. So, it, but Dino really was, he was the first one I actually managed, actually full-time managed and took him to a theater show in Branson, which is very similar to Vegas, mm-hmm. but just a much smaller scale. So yeah, he's my claim to fame. <laughs> For listeners out there that somebody might be going, I want to become and do what Randy does and, and manage artists and not so much of the conscious stuff. We're going to get into that, but managing artists, what's the pros and cons that you can tell them? Well, there's two ways to manage an artist. The first way is to manage them. Like I do is like family. They become your family. They, you know, they knew my kids. They came to my house when they first start, they're broke. So you feed them, you give them a place to stay in your garage. I mean, it just, you, you, you take them in like family. The other side of the, the, the way to manage artists is very much like a business. And there, and honestly, probably there's, there's pros and cons to both sides. You know, it, it, the, the business side is very strict. It's very to the point. It's all about the business. It's all about the, the, the sales of records and, and the sales of tickets. It just wasn't my way. Um, it, people ask me all the time, what would you tell a young artist, a young person that wants to manage? I mean, I, I'd tell them what I did myself. Go find an artist that's playing in a club somewhere that you have passion for. And you love them and you, you, you start following them and you start hanging with them and you start to know them. And then you say, okay, here's a deal. Let me, I don't want your money. I want to earn my pay. Cause that's another thing that most managers, a lot of guys are, are, are you know, sheeps and wolves clothes and they'll, they'll come at you and they'll act like they care. And then the next thing you know, they're hitting you up for 20% on a thousand dollar show when you can't even pay your bills yourself. So, I mean, I tell artists to run away from that. If a, if a manager has to, to live off of you from the very beginning, chances are you probably need to find another manager because then you're going to have a tail wagging the dog. I always managed artists from the perspective, make the right decision for your career. Don't chase the money. If you chase the right decision, the money will follow. Always has, always will. I don't care if it's Fleetwood Mac, jars of clay, whatever it is. If you chase doing the right thing for your career, the money will follow. But anyway, so I, I tell them, find that artist, then go to them and say, all right, I'm going to start putting you in sh- clubs. I'm going to start working you. I'm going to start building you in this certain market. And then I'm going to take that 15 mile radius and I'm going to make it a 30 mile radius and make it a 60 mile radius. And nowadays with record deals, the way they are, honestly, I mean, my, my thought would be sell out the trunk of your car and don't worry about a record deal because a record deal is going to make you give most of it away anyway. And with social media the way it is, the truth of the matter is you don't need a record deal to have a successful career. There's tons of bands out there that are making big money, don't own anybody, anything, and yet they, they have their career and they're building it. So it, it's, it's, a, it's a long process, but then build them that way. Show them your loyalty. As you grow them, then one day the, the, the commission can come and you can begin to say, you see, I stood with you when you were nobody. And then now I'm with you. And most of the acts that I was with, I mean, our, my average age was like 18 years. So, I mean, we go that long. And that's a long time in an artist's career. But uh, there's some that 
at lasted shorter, but that, that also was most of the time I could go back and finger point. That was probably built on the wrong motive from the very beginning. So live and learn. I mean, you know, I'm about to be 60 and I'm still learning, you know what I mean? So it's, it's, uh, it's okay. I mean, if you do, if you're a young person and you want to manage somebody, find somebody you're passionate about, believe in them and then go help them build their career and make the right decisions. Don't chase money. Money will follow. I love the advice. And I love that you said that you're almost 60 and still learning. Cause I always believe that we're all lifelong learners and we're learning, we're learning every day in our craft and we're never going to know everything in whatever aspect you're in, in your life. You're never going to know it all. Never. And if you say you do, that's your first thing that you did wrong. You just told a big fat lie because you're going to learn one way or the other. It always happens. Yep. Randy, you have so much going with all the music festivals and managing artists and you have Randy Love Lady Management. What's the size of your team and how do you stay organized with everything? Well, I've kind of digressed and progressed, if you know what I mean. I reached a point uh, after Little Big Town and I parted ways probably 20 something years into their career that I kind of went, I don't want to I don't want to do this anymore. I kind of want to start the festival business because I love for me. There's nothing more fun than live music. I mean, my girlfriend and I will go sit at a club even now and just listen to live music because the people that are playing are playing because they're passionate about what they're trying to do. So, I mean, from, from my perspective and, and all that, I have a staff of about, uh, I would say, 13 right now. And, and that involves several festivals. But uh, staying organized and structured, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a complicated thing, especially coming out of COVID. And our whole world was shut down for 20 months. So it was um, it was uh, it was quite challenging to keep people employed, to keep people, uh, you know, focused because, you know, that an idle mind is a dangerous playground. You know what I mean? So if you don't have that vision and if you're not constantly pounding in, you got to sell tickets, you got to sell tickets, you got to sell tickets, things, people get bored and, and negativity sets in. So, I mean, it's definitely been, been a, a, a learning process, again, learning. And I, I've learned to motivate people different ways now because uh, sometimes the, the carrot that needs to be dangled is not selling tickets. It's all about building the future. And, and, and COVID, we actually were the Gulf Coast Jam was the, fair, the first major uh, what they call mega event, over 20,000 people to happen in the country. And we did that in June. And boy, my staff they just earned their pay so much even after sitting off for two years, because you had every bullet coming at you from every different direction, the pros, the cons, the, Oh, we love you to, we hate you. Or, you know, you're the best thing for our country that all the way to, I can't believe it. You're killing our people. And so there was a lot of, there was lots of eggs to walk on and shells all over the place. But the reality is, is you find out who your tre- staff is, what they're made of. And I'm just very thankful for my staff now. Listeners, we're going to get deep into the uh, Pepsi Gulf Coast Jam, the one in June. There's another one coming up over Labor Day. But before I go there, Randy, if you would, how did you get connected with Daryl Worley and start up Tennessee River Run back in 2008? Oh, Daryl. That's my <laughs> brother from another mother right there. Um, we honestly, he had, he had reached a point in his career where he felt like his manager at the time was not. Um, doing well, little big town was blowing up and, um, Daryl came and called me up and said, I'd like to sit down and talk to you. So he actually sought me out 
And he and I began to date, so to speak. And we talked for several weeks about different things and, and life itself and talked about his, he had a, a real vision. He, he comes from Savannah, Tennessee, and he had a, there was cancer. There was a, there was a paper mill in the city of Savannah and cancer was rampant through the region because the paper mill and bad stuff in water and what have you. And Daryl came to me and said, man, here's my deal. Here's my package. You know, I, I'm in a transition with my booking agency. I'm a transition with my label. I'm a transition with my, with my festival. I need it to go to the next level. Can you come in here and make a part of it? So literally he and I sat down and said, Let, let's try that. So we actually encompassed everything into the next deal that we did. So we cut, uh, we cut, cut a record deal with James Stroud and, you know, Daryl was very successful before I got him. So I, my part in his life was just trying to make him more successful. And we combined it with his new booking agency, a new, a new path. And then we also combined it all in to the Tennessee River Run, which his goal with the Tennessee River Run was to build a benefit that would help build a cancer treatment center. And that's what we did. We literally laid the brick by brick foundation. We spent the year raising money for the Tennessee River Run, but we spent the year when you focus on this part of a career and not on selling records. Like I said, do the right thing. The money follows. And we see, we reignited his career. He had, uh, you know, tequila on ice and he, he just, he had a brand new hit again. He had brand new focus and he was, he was running and going again. And, and the truth is even to this day, out of all the artists I've ever managed, I'd probably say, uh, even when our time came to an end as management, he's still one of my dearest friends. I actually talked to him the day before yesterday. And he's still going, Tennessee River Run's still going, still raising money for that charity, and they still continue to support Cancer Treatment Center in Savannah, Tennessee. It's it's a great somewhere around there, there's a na- the brick with my name on it. So it's it's a it's a very passionate thing for me. But it became something that was, you know, it's not a huge festival, but we do five to ten thousand people a night. And it was a couple of nights long, and it, but it just made a huge impact in that community and in that area. And I'm, I'm just real proud of that too. That was that was that was. But that's really what started me into the festival business per se. That's it. You know, I, I love hearing that story, Randy. I'm a cancer survivor, and when you said you were building that building for those people, I mean that touches my heart. I mean that that goes a long way. I mean that's that's awesome to hear. Thank you, man. It is. They they had a region that they had to drive 120 miles to the nearest cancer treatment center. So they would be sick as a dog driving back home. And it just, man, it just passionately touched me. And, and Daryl, man, it just, it, it, it was his sole drive. And so I never forget when we opened it up and the first person went six miles to get its treatment for his cancer, he was like life changed. And then, you know, and some didn't make it, but most do make it because they get that proactive treatment. And it was, it was just, it was amazing. So I, I gotta be honest. It's one of my proudest career moments. I mean, the Grammys are important and the platinum records are important and all that stuff, but doing something like that, I mean, you're, you're, you're making a difference in people's lives. When I, when I lay in that pine box one day, I don't really care if they say, well, he sold, he, he won nine Grammys and two Academy Awards and sold 30 million records. That means nothing. But when you, when you sit there and you say, man, the last count I heard, there was over 13,000 people that had t- been touched by that cancer treatment center. And that that's changing people's lives. And that's, mm-hmm. that's what, when it's all said and done, that's what it's all about. I agree with you a hundred percent. 
What made you head to the Florida Panhandle to start Gulf Coast Jam? Well, the truth is I had this little run that, that's called Bama Jam that was in Enterprise, Alabama. And I actually met the owner of, the, the, of that festival through Darrell Worley uh, doing the Tennessee River Run. And they had a cross up in that. And they actually, um, the, the owner came to me and said, would you come in and would you put this festival together? And we did. We went and put the festival together and began to work it and begin to build on it and take it several more years. And then there were some problems legally with the property. And one of the things that make a festival works, you got to have the property consistent. You need to have a consistent date and a consistent place to have the same festival. You change the names of the artists, but there has to be a consistency in it. So when Bama Jam was coming to an end in 2012, my partner and I began to look for places that we sold a lot of tickets at because that's what it's all about. And then we had to have a vision of the city because when you do something like this, the city has to own you. They have to be proud of you and have to, to embrace you. And we met with several cities in Panama City Beach. The mayor at that time, her name was Gail. She was encouraging. She was skeptical because she'd seen all the pictures of the big parties in Bama Jam, but she also knew that that's the kind of thing that helps bring awareness about uh, the location. And this, listen, this beach here is one of the most beautiful beaches in the world. And it's, it's like, but it's still, people think of it, you know, as a Southern town and kind of like the redneck Riviera and they're trying to increase their popularity and their vision here. And um, so we, we, that's basically what it was is we found a partnership with the, the, the TDC, which is a tourism department here in Panama city beach and the mayor and the city and, and we started in 2013 and 22 will be our 10 year anniversary. So it's, it's been an amazing run. Amazing. Listeners, the Pepsi Gulf Coast Jam is the largest country music festival in the Southeast and nationally. They just wrapped up Gulf Coast Jam in June. That saw over 70,000 people attend a three day event that has all 50 states, 14 countries. You're looking at over 23,000 people each day. You're looking at headliners like Luke Bryan, Brad Paisley, Leonard Skinner. They also had acts such as Cole Swindell, Billy Ray Cyrus, Brothers Osborne, and Cody Jinks. I mean, Randy, was this a monster success for you guys coming back out of COVID? It was, I, I can't even tell you. The music business as a whole was just shut down. There was no, there, there, you couldn't even do live events with 200 people in it, much less 30,000. So, Basically, the last event we had was in 19, September, Labor Day of 19. And literally, we sat for, for almost 22 months. And I, I mean, you know, people, I mean, the music industry, th these people are like me. This is all they know how to do. You know, whether you're guitar tech or a stagehand or whatever it is, it's just there's not a lot of depth in your career outside of the music business as a whole. And the reality is it was tough. I mean, people were unemployed. A lot of people, there's some people that live off of social security, but most people literally take pride in what they do and want to work. And when you have somebody that has a lot of pride and they want to work and they can't work, it becomes an emotional, I mean, discouragement to them. Mm -hmm. I'll never forget the first day we loaded in. I mean, literally the first nine semi trucks came up with the, with the, the stage and the, the bus came out with all the stage hands started getting off of it. And people, these grown men, Big men, you know, I mean, tough men 
started crying because they were going back to work. And it was like they were excited and they were happy. And, you know, normally they're grumpy because they've been working the whole year and they're tired. And these guys, and, and forgive me, ladies as well, came just excited and ready to work. I can't even tell you how many times, man. Thank you for the job, Randy. Thank you for the job. And I'm sitting here going, dude, I'm just trying to stay a living, make a living like you are. So it, it became a it became a, a rally. It became a, a pace. I know that there was a lot of concert promoters watching us going, OK, let's see if he's a sacrificial <laughs> lamb or if he's actually going to pull this off. So um, I got a, some encouraging calls from some very high up people in the, in the festival and concert business saying, keep going. And honestly, the, the agencies, all the major agencies that we had on our stages, they were very cooperative. It was a scary time because nobody knew what to believe. Nobody knew what to think was real or not real. You, you hear all these stories and then you hear all these other stories. And when you're sitting there going, well, what's the truth? I mean, you really didn't know what the truth was. So you just kind of started acting on your own. And I mean, we, we rescheduled it from Labor Day of 19 to we were going to try it again in March. And we rescheduled it from March to May. And then Luke found out his, his finals for uh, the American Idol was the same week as the festival. And he said, we need to move it. So we ended up moving it to June. So we moved that festival three times just to get it done. But it was it was it was done. We had to follow some strict protocols and, you know, we had to follow some heavy duty rules and enforce some very heavy duty rules. But most people came to, to excited. You know, we 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 developed a protocol where people had to, to, to put a certain hand sanitizer on them and. We sprayed down all the facilities with a certain kind of chemical that was supposed to protect them for three weeks. And we built a, a dot com where people had to take a survey and you had to honestly had to count on them telling the truth, which is, you know, there's a possibility of them lying. But they had to answer the, the, the COVID questions. You know, have I been exposed? Do I have fever? Blah, blah, blah. And the bottom line is, is we didn't have one single case come out of Panama City Beach that week. Love it. Not one. And in the surrounding areas, there was not a spike in any location. Everything declined. Everything went down. So, I mean, all of a sudden, everybody was going, let's do this. And I mean, I had artists. Let me tell you a story. Scandard, that you know, these guys are old as dirt. They've been doing it forever, ever and ever. They hadn't played in 20 months. And they sitting there right before they go on stage. And the lead singer was sitting there just, he was just kind of rubbing his face and hitting his face. And I went, are you okay? Are you, I mean, are you okay? He says, dude, I hadn't played to a crowd, much less 25,000 people in 20 months. I'm scared to death. And I said, well, dude, y'all know how to do it. And he says, I do know how to do it, but I hadn't done it in front of that. He said, there's a lot of rehearsals and videotapes out there that we tried, but it ain't nothing like getting in front of 25,000 people. But it wasn't just him. I mean, Brad and Paisley, the next night, he's standing right there about to go on stage, and my partner and I walked him on stage, and he's sitting there doing his scales, doing his scales, doing his scales, and Brad Paisley's a virtuoso, and he was scared to death. He was white as a sheep, and I asked him the same question. He says, I have not played a show. He said, I've been doing this for 20-something years, and this is the first I feel like I just started. So there was a lot of excitement, man. They hit that stage, and it was crazy, and it was big, and everybody was happy, and it was a great, great weekend. It really was. Can you tell my listeners the story about a gentleman in a seaplane? <laughs> <laughs> Lord have mercy. 
I mean, honestly, the truth of the matter is, is that in the festival business, you kind of revise and adapt, right? I mean, after Vegas, what happened in Vegas, everybody, and especially like me, places like me, where I got high rises everywhere around my property, you know, not, you, know you think a facility is safe in the circle of the environment. You put up brick walls everywhere, you concrete, and you, you think, okay, we're safe. And then what happened in Vegas all of a sudden introduced a whole nother level of security risk. And especially with high rises. So now you put snipers up everywhere. You, you have hidden police everywhere and you have all these big high tech machines everywhere. And lo and behold, we're sitting in the middle of the festival and there at the second night. I know it was the first night and the seaplane just starts circling the uh, the crowd. And, you know, I, I'm not going to lie. We've had people do that before because, you know, but then they get in trouble real fast because the uh, they police call, you know, the, the aviation and they call them up on there and say, you're in a non-flying zone. You need to get away or you'll get shot down, blah, blah, blah. And they move on. Well, this guy was flying under the radar. He was flying so low, it became very uncomfortable. And he made it, he did three circles and everybody was trying to get him on the radio. Everybody. And actually, we didn't even see him come and didn't get wait, wait, uh, get any kind of warning because he was flying under radar. Our, one of our snipers saw him from a distance, called it in, and then, that's when we all started watching. And the next thing we knew, this guy did a – he started climbing and he did a nosedive down. And he's coming straight for the crowd. And then right, they say about 150, 200 feet, he nosed up and he dumped out a bunch of uh, koozies that had an advertisement for an air a flight training school that he had. <laughs> well, oh my gosh. At the time, I mean, we were in what we call, I have this thing in the middle of my, uh, in my shows where if we're evacuating for weather or whatever, cause you know, in Florida and hurricane season, you never know what's coming up and we call it the circle of life. And I have each division head from the sheriff's departments, from Homeland security and from the PD surround me. And that way we have, Total comms to all of our departments to, you know, we have about 400 police officers on site. So everybody's in communication and I'm sitting there and I'm going, what the crap is this? And nobody had an answer because nobody could get him on the radio. Nobody could talk to him. And then he nosed up, he dropped all those mugs out. And the truth is he, he flew and he circled again. So we didn't know what he had dropped out. We saw it was black. It could have been anything. So we're sitting here thinking the worst. I mean, complete panic. And, and come to find out it was the koozies and then they couldn't get a hold of him. So they took the cell number or the number that was on the koozie. They pinged it and it's in the plane. So this guy was trying to hide, but he had his cell phone on. They pinged the cell phone number and followed him all the way down the beach and arrested his butt when he got off the plane. And he's going to be in jail for a long time to come. And he probably owes me about nine pairs of underwear because I've probably sold every pair of them. It was, it, it, I've, Wow. That was, could be the scariest I've ever faced. I literally did there for a few seconds. I thought we're about to have our version of nine 11 opening first night, you know, CNN, Fox news, every news nation was there and anything could have happened. I just, I just knew we were going to, at that moment in time, I just thought we were about to be the next catastrophe. And it turns out to be some nutcase throwing out advertisement for his air school. Which, oh, by the way, that's a felony. <laughs> you can't fly <laughs> over people. So anyway, it definitely was a scary moment. No question.
glad he's uh, locked up and maybe he'll learn that he's going to need, if he ever does get out, he needs a different marketing tactic because that's not working. <laughs> I would say marketing definitely affected his life very well. The ninth annual is going to be Labor Day weekend with headliners Chris Stapleton, Brooks and Dunn, Old Dominion. How many other acts are going to be performing, Rendy, and how can people get tickets? Well, there, there's eight acts a day. And then we have our Southern original. You're talking about management, that, that true love of that original artist. We actually have a competition. Last year, we had over 3,000 contestants enter to it. And the winner plays on the main stage at the, the first day with, or the headliner day, in this case, being Brooks, Brooks and Dunn. So, and then we have six finalists that play on a stage that comes into it. So if you make the top 10, you come to net, we bring you into Panama city beach. Then you make the top six, you play on the, the, what we call the entrance stage. And then if you win, you play on the main stage. So anyway, we have everybody from Gary Allen to Tyler Rich. I mean, I guess Chris Jansen, Frank, Frankie Ballard, Scotty McCreary, Tracy Lawrence. We got everything in the, the gamut from brand new hot country to, I mean, people that have been around doing it along. We got Confederate Railroad this time. So it's, we have a variety, but it's gulfcoastjam.com. It's one-stop shop. You can go there, buy a ticket. You can go there and get a lead to get, find a condo. And at Labor Day weekend, condos can be very um, challenging at times. All my career, all my career, putting butts in the seats, butts in the seats, butts in the seats. Well, now I do a show in Panama City. I'm putting heads in the beds, heads in the beds, (laughs) because there's, 20,000 condos down here and we're trying to fill them. So that's what we do. Putting heads in the beds. Listeners go to the show notes. I'm going to put a link there where you can click and go directly to the site to purchase tickets. If you're going to be in the area or you want to go, I would highly suggest you take a look at, I mean, I don't know where else you're going to go for a festival this size with this kind of headliners and that kind of act. So get yourself there to Pepsi Gulf Coast Jam Labor Day weekend. Randy, uh, back to that on Gulf Coast Jam. I'll let you say the names of the people. I saw it in, in research. I thought it was a hell of a story. In 2019, 30 minutes before one of your made headliners was supposed to take the stage, he canceled due to illness. And then, you know, you got a lot of flack because this person didn't take the stage. You made a call to a friend of yours who saved the day, not only the festival, but people were ratting and raving after that. I, I mean, it's, it's the, the truth of the matter is it was a very, um, it was a very hard night. It was Jason Aldean and he was, I mean, he was sick as a dog, his wife, his child had had a stomach flu before. And, um, it was, it was a very challenging moment. That's, 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 uh, that's to say the least. And I, I just, we were, we were at a place, we had no idea. He came in that morning, and we put him on IVs. We called the doctors in. They gave him some Zofran. They settled his stomach down. They let him sleep for eight hours. And we thought, okay, for sure he'd come out and give us, you know, 45 minutes and then call it a night early and all that stuff. But he couldn't even, when he woke up, he went straight to throwing up and he could not even get out of bed. So in the middle of that panic, when the tour manager walks off the bus and says, Jason, he's not going on. I mean, you sit there and you go, are you freaking kidding me right now? <laughs> And he said, no, nope, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. And the, forgive me, my, my mind's drawing a blank, but the guys that were on the stage, I called their manager and I said, um, I can't believe I can't remember their name. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, so they called a manager who's been a buddy of mine forever. 
And I said, I, I need the guys just to keep playing. He said, well, go up on stage and get on the in-ears and ask them. So literally went up there on stage and asked the guys. It's a duo. Forgive me. My, I cannot remember their name. It's, a, it's two guys that have been around for a while. And they were direct support. And they did amazing. And they brought the house down. I mean, everybody was just nuts. But you're right. I received so much criticism because they thought I'd known the whole day. They thought that I had planned it out that way. And then when everything was said and done, I mean, I, I literally, they were so concerned with my safety. They made me stay on my bus after they played. So then I called Bob, big kid rock. And I said, kid, if you ever delivered a performance, I need you to do one for me tonight. I said, I, I told him what happened. And of course he had his own opinion about what happened. <laughs> and he said, Randy, I'm going to rock that world. And I want you to know, Bob came out there in the middle of Gulf Coast Jam. And I realized it was a slight departure for us because we're a flat country festival. But I mean, Kid Rock's got so much country root. He is, he is the man. Mm -hmm. And he went out there and to this day, to this day, now it's been several years later, he is the favorite show of Gulf Coast Jam history. Wow. And he got up there and delivered a show with production, with the bells and whistles that only Kid Rock can perform. And that night after everybody's over with them, and I said, okay, I told my security team, I said, I'm going out. I got to go see my people because I can't let them think I'm afraid. So I had five bodyguards around me at different parts of the street because they all walk, you know, they're walking out. It's like a football stadium and everybody's walking out. And everybody's high-fiving me and said, we love you still. I mean, the night before they were saying, you rotten piece <laughs> of poo-poo. I mean, it, it was bad. But, man, they, the Kid Rock just, he saved the world, man. He did. He delivered the goods. It was awesome. Randy, what do you think the future of live music is now that it's back? I, I think without question, based on our actual numbers, I think we're going to see such a spike in live entertainment, whether it's movie theaters, whether it's, because once you don't have it and you can't have it and you're forbidden to be there, I think there is a withdrawal that you just kind of take for granted. Because honestly, I've been in this business 30 something years and I've never gone without live music, never. And then all of a sudden, you know, for 20 months, 22 months, I couldn't do anything. And I think the pinup demand for live music is just going to be undeniable. The numbers in live events right now, where people are actually being able to go are amazing. The numbers are huge and the people are just so excited. Even our show, the first night I have never heard a crowd war. I mean, Skinner hit that stage and they started doing what Skinner only, I can't think of another band more fitting to celebrate freedom than Leonard Skinner. And they got up there and they started singing free bird and the whole crowd was singing with them. And then they went to sweet home, Alabama and, I mean, they just were singing and everybody was singing and you look in the crowd and everybody had their arms around each other, swaying back and forth. And these are strangers, man. These people don't know each other from Adam. And you saw 25,000 people in one accord, one and one body under God, under country and happy and excited. And I think I think we're going to see live music come back like never before. I really do. I know that our September sales are blowing away our June sales being the first event and people are just excited. They keep saying, I can't wait, can't wait, can't wait. So we're excited about it. And then you're going to have sand jam in October, right? Yeah. Three festivals in four months. Woo! And then um, <laughs> we're going 
on a vacation somewhere <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. And I'm not going to tell nobody. My girlfriend and I are going to just go, don't call us. We'll call you. <laughs> we have a rock festival, which is kind of normally it's in April, but because we've had to reschedule it and all that stuff again, we're doing it in October. So three festivals in four months. It's going to be a lot exciting to have something because we were sitting for two years. <laughs> I understand that. Do you think the difference in music these days versus where it was 10 years ago is that it's going back to singles? We're not seeing the LPs like we were before. Uh, 100%. You, I mean, just talking to my buddies and that are signing record deals right now, or even new artists are coming. They don't come in with a record project. They come in and they get a, a EP deal or they get a single deal where they take one single, put it on the radio, see if it sticks. If it sticks, they'll feed the beast one more time. If that sticks the third time, they'll make an EP out of it, and then they'll make a record. And sometimes they don't even make a record. They go straight from an EP to another EP. Yeah, there's there's not a lot of depth because, it, honestly, with, with music theft and with satellite radio and with Apple radio and Apple music and all the other different kinds of musics, People aren't really buying music like they used to. They're more listening to music. There's more people that know a song but don't know the artist than ever before. I mean, I, especially now being a promoter trying to promote shows of people that you would think would be huge, but they don't really know their name of the artist, but they know their music. So you have to spend a lot of time educating people on what music they played and say, they go, oh, I know who that is. So even their faces, because MTV doesn't exist anymore like it used to. And so the, you don't see the videos like they used to. And so you're having to find other ways to sell tickets, to, to create energy. 100%. I'm a big vinyl guy. So I've always been in vinyl. I'm glad vinyl's making a somewhat of a comeback. I think people buy Absolutely. it. As, I think people buy it now as more of a vanity. I, there are some of us that are big into vinyl. We collect it. But I'm glad it's there because it, I think it's still helping with exposure. Well, there's, and there's also an authenticity to a vinyl sound and there is to any yes. digital sound. I know it sounds like an old man talking, but it's the truth. Without a question. I can listen to a record and feel a warmth and feel a sound that you'll never hear. I don't care how digital the digital is. You'll never hear that sound on a CD or a digital download. So I'm with you. I love vinyl. Love vinyl. When it's all done for you and you decide to walk away, you're not going to do festivals anymore. What do you want your legacy to be? That's a great question. When it's all said and done, I don't want to be the guy that sold tickets. I don't want to be the guy that had Grammys. I want to be the guy that loved his family, loved his, his, his friends. And, and people knew me about my faith, not about my success because honestly you can't take that with you the legacy is left in your people that you leave behind and what they believed about you I, I can't be honest enough and say there wasn't a time and I was driven for the Grammys and for the Academy Awards and for, for the acclimatisms and the successes but there's nothing like you know your child looking at you and say thank you for coming to this I can't believe you made time for me or or, or whatever it might be or you cancer treatment or St. Jude's is a big, we, we're big into St. Jude's. We give tickets or money out of our tickets to St. Jude. It's just, I mean, it's more about what you make a difference in people's lives. And, and, that, and again, I've come full circle on that. When I was young and stupid, all I wanted was, you know, the, the next Grammy, the next platinum record. I mean, but it's, it's not what's important. 
and it's relationships and it's the people that you can speak into their lives. When it's all said and done, that's what makes the difference. And that's not just me talking. That's my true, honest, sincere feeling. I can feel that coming through in the interview and the way you're talking. Uh, and something that's important to me is time. I value it. I value other people's time. I thank you for your time and being on my show and telling your story and telling about the festivals. I want to say thank you. And I want to say thank you for my listeners. You know, it's my, it's anytime I can share who I am and what I am and how I got it to be. It's an honor and a privilege for thank you for having me. Listeners, if you would, please go and rate and review the show for me. It takes 30 seconds on any platform that you're getting the podcast. Please rate and review the show. Five stars, nice comments are always appreciated. If you would, follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. Until next time, everybody, thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. A salute. A chin chin. <laughs>